Good morning. Yes, my week in Michigan was very good. Um, the first three days, it was over 90 degrees, unseasonably warm for a part of the country where most people do not have air conditioning because you rely on the cool evenings to cool things down. But uh, praise God, it was a great time. Jenny and Jesse are still up there, and so I'm kind of batching it here until the early August, but uh, they're, they're really enjoying their time as well. Um, we are in Nehemiah chapter 2, and so I'm going to ask if you would stand. We are not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we will sprinkle the rest of the scriptures through the morning message. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. Please be seated. You know, life is filled with examples of the fact that actions have consequences, right? Uh, Good actions generally have good consequences. Bad actions, foolish actions normally have unfavorable consequences. Uh, Life is filled with all kinds of examples of that. You know, in school, if you study hard, you're more than likely going to be a candidate for a scholarship. If you don't study hard, if you goof around, uh, you're going to have limited opportunities after school is done. At work, if you do the absolute minimum that's required of you, you probably won't get recognized favorably by your boss. You might keep your job. Then again, you might not. Somebody who has more oomph might replace you. Um, whereas on the other hand, if you work hard, go above and beyond, your boss probably will recognize you, and you may get that promotion. Good consequences from good actions, bad consequences from bad actions. We could give you lots of examples of that. Now, when God establishes covenant with his people, he made it very clear to them that their actions would have consequences, both good and bad. For example, he says, 
If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains and your season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Good actions, good consequences. But then the reverse. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, if you walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I myself will devastate the land and I will scatter you among the nations. Your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Bad actions, bad consequences. And for those of you who are familiar with the history of the people of Israel and the people of Judah, you know that that's exactly what happened. Now let me read for you a piece of that history that leads up to our study in these weeks of, of Nehemiah. It's in Second Chronicles 36, the last chapter of Chronicles. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That'd be a massive understatement to say that that is not a good place to be. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. And so the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord... The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And so Cyrus, the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world, and I think we have a map someplace in there, Greg, you can find it, of the Persian empire at that time. Massive. They had conquered the Lydians, they had conquered the Medes, they had conquered the Babylonians. That was Cyrus, who is used by God to get ready for the return of his people and the rebuilding of the city. Now, I want you to think for a minute about the sovereignty of God over kings and rulers and nations. It's phenomenal, friends. I mean, all the way back in Exodus, he used the Pharaoh of Egypt in order to gain glory for himself, even though the Pharaoh wanted nothing to do with God, resisted him. And God said, I'm going to use you for my glory. 
Here in 2 Chronicles 36, he is the king of the Chaldeans, Nabopolassar, first of all. Then when the Persians under Cyrus the Great conquered the Medes and the Babylonians, God used Cyrus to get Jerusalem rebuilt. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. That's an amazing statement. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Now, I say all that just to remind you, whenever you are unsettled in your spirit by all the political turmoil in the world, North Korea or Russia or what seems to be always going on in the Middle East, Syria, just remind yourself of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the rulers. And in some way, he takes all of it together to work out his divine purposes. Isaiah 40, verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. I put a little water in my hand and I'm able to roll it around and do whatever with it I want. That's the kings of the earth in the hand of the Lord. Referring to kings and rulers who think that they're so tough and in charge of the world, Psalm 2 verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. And Paul said, wrote to, first Timothy, for, for, wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, Our Lord Jesus Christ, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So don't sit on your couch and watch the nightly news and wring your hands, people of God. In fact, I would even suggest trying, just try laughing once in a while. Then you'll be joining God in heaven. As you envision the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the day coming when all the kings of the earth will one day bow down to him. Okay. Now that's the sermon before the sermon. <clears throat> now Second Chronicles ends with God's people who've been in exile now being allowed to return to Jerusalem by the sovereign hand of God on Cyrus to rebuild their beloved city. That's what the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. Ezra rebuilding the temple, Nehemiah rebuilding the walls and the gates and re-inhabiting the city and its surrounding villages. Last week, Will walked you through the first chapter of Nehemiah, gave you the introduction, the background, as well as Nehemiah's prayer, lengthy prayer. This morning, we're in chapter 2, and I just want to make some observations this morning about the heart and the spirit of the man Nehemiah, and see if there aren't some principles that we can apply, some faith principles that we can apply to our own lives, okay? Observation number one, very simple, very basic observation, a heavy heart is hard to hide. A heavy heart is hard to hide. Nehemiah says that he took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. The king said to me, why is your face sad? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Now chapter 2 begins, and you are in the month of Nisan, which is March-April of 445 B.C. Last week, you were in the month of Kislev, November-December of 446 B.C. Four months have passed 
During those four months, Nehemiah has been thinking, pondering, lamenting, weeping, praying, fasting for four months. And now he comes before the king on this particular occasion, and he is unable to hide his sadness. Now, there are lots of things in life that make us sad, right? All kinds of things in life. You could make your list, the things in your life that have really made you sad over the course of your life. And God has designed us in such a way that our emotional state can generally be detected first through our facial expressions. Happiness, sadness, depression, worry, fear, doubt, alarm, anger, exhaustion, exuberance, awe, wonder, it all shows up right here. It's amazing how God has done that, isn't it? On this occasion, Nehemiah stands before the king, and the king sees sadness to a degree that he had never seen it on Nehemiah's face before. And he says, I know you're not sick, so what's going on? See, Nehemiah couldn't hide it. Maybe prior to this, he'd been able to. Maybe prior to this, he'd been able to pretend that everything was okay whenever he went before the king because he was the cupbearer. He was basically responsible to make sure that nobody poisoned the king's cup or the king's food. And so he'd gone before the king on previous occasions. Maybe before, he'd been able to kind of hold it together. This time, not so much. Let me just give you a couple of simple takeaways that I see at this point. Very, very basic before we get to the next point. Number one, listen to your emotions. Listen to your emotions, because God uses them. They're a gift from God. God uses your sadness to tell you something's going on. God uses your anger to tell you something's going on in your spirit. All through the Bible, Nehemiah, Hannah weeping, David rejoicing, then David fearing, Jeremiah lamenting, Jesus weeping. Listen to all of your emotions and Don't be so inclined to cover them up and suppress them with some external facade that everything is just always fine because you know better. And you need to be honest with what God's Spirit is doing inside of your spirit through those episodes. And then secondly, related to that, be observant of the emotions of others. Like Cyrus was so perceptive with Nehemiah. Or excuse me, like Artaxerxes was with Nehemiah. I mean, what do you do when you see someone who's visibly distraught or weighed down with sadness? Are you able to show as much concern as the king did with Nehemiah on that occasion? I mean, here here was, at the time, one of the most powerful men in the world stepping into the sadness of one of his servants. Are you able to show compassion and tenderness when you know someone is sad? Are you able to be bold enough and gentle enough and caring enough to ask a simple question? Why are you so sad today? Maybe just a simple question would open up a whole opportunity for you to show compassion to someone. Someone at work, a neighbor, someone in your extended family. So that's my first observation, is a heavy heart is hard to hide and allow God's God's gift of emotions to work for you and also for your ministry to others. Number two, second observation, an honest heart tells it like it is. An honest heart tells it like it is. Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid, and rightly so. 
Rulers possess power. On a human level, absolute rulers possess absolute power. Nehemiah was cupbearer to a powerful individual. He had won the trust of the king over his years of service. And when the king observed Nehemiah's downcast face, face and asked him what was wrong, Nehemiah was quick, first of all, to assure the king of his allegiance. Let the king live forever. It's pretty smart on his behalf. But I actually honestly believe that he probably truly desired that for the king. I think he really did. I think he really had the best interests of the king whom he served in his heart. But then he follows that up by telling the king of the reason for his sadness. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, friends, at that point, Nehemiah could have lied. He could have said, no, O king, I have been sick. It was something I ate last night. Um, He could have pretended that everything was just fine and dandy. But he didn't take either of those routes. He just simply told it like it was. I think sometimes we're afraid to be honest with others about our circumstances. I'm not saying you go around telling everybody everything about your world. That's a good way to get people to avoid you, like a plague. But there is definitely a place and a need for you to be absolutely honest with somebody. So that when someone you trust cares about you enough to ask how you're doing, you tell them. And don't just put on that Christian facade. You know, I'm really hurting. I'm in a bad place. It's been a rough season. I'm so glad you asked. Can we talk? Um, You see, especially when there's something that's really weighing you down and they can see it in your body language. Let others minister to you is all I'm saying at this point. Let others minister to you. Don't be so proud as to think you're supposed to handle it all on your own. Because you can't. Let people into your world. Let others bless you. You know, as Christians, we can be pretty quick with the Christian cliches, can't we? And sometimes we use them to build little protective fences and walls around ourselves. Christian cliches have a way of shutting down conversation. Christian cliches have a way of preventing others from ministering to you. For example, everything happens for a reason. Well, that just kind of shuts it down, doesn't it? God never gives us more than we can handle. When God closes a door, he opens a window. Now, there are lots of these little sayings that we have that just really kind of spiritualize things and shut them down. As opposed to giving an opportunity to open things up and create opportunities for ministry back and forth, and dialogue, and conversation, and healing, and compassion, and tenderness. Cyrus, or Artaxerxes here, was so, so compassionate to ask the question. Nehemiah did not respond to the question with, well, God never gives us more than we can handle. Yeah, Jerusalem's a mess today, but everything happens for a reason. An honest heart tells it like it is. My third observation from this chapter, 
A hesitant heart finds increased boldness while trusting in God. If your heart is hesitant, you will find your boldness from trusting in God. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so the king senses that Nehemiah really would love to ask, make a request of him, but he's hesitant to do so. He's scared, and he should be. It's right for him to have hesitancy when standing before the king. So the king puts it to him very plainly. Nehemiah, come on, tell me, what is it that you're wanting to request of me? And then it just simply says, so I pray to the God of heaven. Now for Nehemiah, put yourself in his shoes. Things are starting to move rather quickly here. The king is asking him, what do you want? The question is, is Nehemiah ready to give an answer? He says, so I, I prayed to the God of heaven. It doesn't tell us what he prayed. He didn't have time to say, um, could I have a couple of weeks to pray this over before I give you an answer? No, he'd already prayed. He'd been praying and planning and praying and planning and preparing, praying and planning and preparing, waiting for God's time when such a question would be asked of him. So that when the king asked, what are you requesting? First of all, Nehemiah instinctively offered up one more prayer. Doesn't tell us what it was. Probably something like, okay, Lord, here we go. Help me, Lord. In his spirit, he just prayed a quick prayer. I pray to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. It's an incredible exchange, an incredible exchange. You say, where does that boldness come from? Well, I think it comes from knowing God, knowing God's character, trusting God, having developed a long-standing relationship with God, taking God at his word, knowing God's word, knowing the promises that God had made about his people that if they repent, I will bring them back to the land, I will restore, I will rebuild them. Nehemiah had all of that going on inside of him, and now this great and powerful king is giving him an opportunity to be a part of God's plan. You see, friends, you can muster up self-confidence all you want, but in the Bible, what you really find is God-confidence. Man in and of himself is all about self-confidence. Just set your mind to it, and you can conquer the world. Anything you set your mind to, you can do. Well, that's just flat out not true. That's just a lie. And so the Bible says, no, where is your confidence? Your confidence needs to be in the Lord. Otherwise, you get all the glory. It's not about you. It's about God and his glory. It's about his strength. Please send me to Judah that I may rebuild the city. Now, let's be realistic here. You will probably never be called upon by God to build a city. Okay? Is that fair? Maybe somebody will. Please let us know, and we will send mission money to help you. But God will call you to build other things. I mean, the Lord will put projects in front of you. you know, some of those projects may be big projects, like the Jesus Film Project. Massive. And as we'll see in Nehemiah, is true for them, 
It takes a team of people to pull off those kinds of projects. But what about just individually, each you and me in our daily lives? God will put projects in front of you. Projects that are bigger than you can handle in your own strength. Some of those projects are of a personal nature. For example, the rebuilding of parts of your own life that are in disrepair. The rebuilding of walls that have been torn down. The rebuilding of your integrity at work. The rebuilding of trust with your kids or your spouse. Removing the rubble that's resulted from your own sin and foolishness. Or how about for those of you who are married, the, the, the project of building a strong, healthy, joyful, delightful marriage. Some of you would probably rather be given the task of rebuilding a city than rebuilding a marriage. But talk about an incredibly worthy, God-honoring project to repair the walls and the gates in your relationship with your spouse or with your kids. How are the gates and the walls with you and your children? Those of you who have grown children. Those of you who are single, what are the walls and gates that need to be built and established and strengthened and fortified and repaired in your life? Or how about just the daily call of God to bless others who are right in front of you? That's a project, a daily project that God gives to his people. I want you to bless people, God says. Every place you go, I want you to bless people. I want you to be a blessing. I called my people Israel to be a blessing, and they kind of messed it up. I'm calling you, church, to be a blessing to the world. Bless the world. And let it start in your home, and then let it go to your immediate neighbors, and your community, your church your school, the people you work with. I really like the recent Josh Wilson song, Dream Small. Have you heard it on the radio? Some of you, Dream Small. It's a, it's a cool little song. I'm not going to sing it for you. But some of the lyrics, it's a mama singing songs about the Lord. It's a daddy spending family time that the world says he can't afford. It's visiting the widow down the street or dancing on a Friday with your friend with special needs. That's probably why it grabbed me. Dancing on a Friday with your friend with special needs. These simple moments change the world. Projects. Building projects. He says, dream small. Don't buy the lie, you've got to do it all. Just let Jesus use you where you are, one day at a time. Live well. Loving God and others as yourself, find little ways where only you can help. With his great love, a tiny rock can make a giant fall. Dream small. It's great. Most of us won't be given massive projects. But every day, God gives us opportunities to do that, to build something. To build something. And then when God some, puts something on your heart that stretches you beyond your comfort zone, beyond your abilities, and you find yourself overwhelmed by the nature of the task, that's when you need the boldness that comes from trusting God with childlike faith. And that is exactly what Nehemiah did in chapter 2. I prayed to God, Father, help me here. I need your help. Keep, keep moving. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So the king wants to know exactly what's going to happen here. And Nehemiah is able to tell him. 
He had thought all this through. He was prepared so that when the time came, when the opportunity presented itself, he'd be ready. He was able to give the king an amount of time that it would take for him to go to Judah, get all the work done, and return. He was able to tell him how many materials and what kind of materials he would need for this building project. He knew exactly what kind of authorizations he would need from the rulers on the other side of the Euphrates. Praying, planning, praying, planning, praying, planning. What a great model for our lives. And then always ready, always ready for an opportunity when God puts it in front of us. Observation number four from Nehemiah 2. A humble heart keeps moving forward in the face of adversity. A humble heart, a heart that depends upon God, keeps moving forward regardless of the adversity. Now, don't think for a minute that just because you love the Lord and are seeking to do His will that it's going to be easy-peasy, right? In fact, I find the exact opposite in this book. If you love the Lord and you're seeking to do His will and follow Him, it'll, it may very likely be a lot harder than it was when you really had no concerns about those things. And so what was it for Nehemiah? Well, first of all, he had difficult people. When Sanballat the Horonite, that's just a great name, Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Difficult people. And we're going to run into these guys all the way through the book. There he is again. Will they ever give up? Nope. They will always be there. Do you have any difficult people in your world? Silly question, right? And do not, do not turn and look at your spouse. I mean, for Nehemiah, it was people who were opposed to him doing the will of God. See, friends, not everyone's on the Lord's side. Not everyone cares about God's glory. Not everyone loves the gospel. Not everyone believes the gospel. And it's always been this way. All through this book, it's always been this way. From the very beginning, God said there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Here, Sanballat and Tobiah are opposed to God's people, and they are opposed to those who seek God's will for God's people. I would imagine the Jesus Film Project has had lots of difficulties and challenges over the years. The local church faces difficult situations, difficult people who sometimes stand in the way of what God is wanting to do. And they serve for us as just a reminder that we too have an enemy who opposes us, who stands in our path. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities and powers in heavenly places. And oftentimes, that enemy is working through people who oppose. And then difficult circumstances. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. He says he went out by night. He goes out on this reconnaissance mission at night. Hasn't told anybody what he's doing. Hasn't brought anybody else into the, into the, into the story yet. Goes out at night. He has to kind of snake his way through all the debris and all the rubble. We have a picture. I want to show a picture. You know, some of the before and afters of... Uh, these, are, these are from Aleppo, um, Syria. Uh, 
I guess I put them a little bit too high on the screen, the exact same scenes of before and after. And there's another one after that one. The glory and the splendor, and then the debris. And then one last one. Look at what it looked like before, and look at what it looks like today. It gives you an idea of what Nehemiah was going back to in Jerusalem. A city that had, had, had been filled with the glory of God and the temple and just everything, and now it's been destroyed. But friends, it did not deter him. He didn't decide to throw in the towel. I mean, with a continued posture of humility before God and dependence upon God, he faced the adversity, the debris, the ruins, the rubble, the city being torn down, the city gates being set ablaze. He was able to look at it, and he was able to look beyond it to what could be with God's help. And friends... The exact same thing is true for you. See, maybe you have pictures like that in your life, of before and after. It used to be beautiful, and now something's gone really wrong here. The enemy has swept into my life and just wreaked havoc, brought a lot of destruction. Nehemiah would stand here to say, stand here with us this morning and say, keep moving forward. Keep moving forward by trusting in God. There is hope for God's people. And that brings us to our last point, number five. A hopeful heart rests in God. Rests in God. See, your circumstances will keep you all stirred up and you can't run away from your circumstances. But in the midst of them, in the midst of the debris and rubble and destruction, whatever it is, a hopeful heart finds its rest in God, and then also a hopeful heart confidently calls upon others to come help. Come help. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And so Nehemiah is saying, yeah, the trouble is all around us. I don't have to tell you guys anything you don't already know. You've seen it before I got here. But with God's hand upon us, as God's good hand has been upon me, now God's good hand will be upon us. We can do this. So won't you join me? Won't you join me? That's what Nehemiah is saying. See, friends, when God's good hand is upon his people, it will ultimately turn out good. May take a while. Maybe a season. Maybe some some long suffering and perseverance is needed. But when God's good hand is upon his people, it will ultimately turn out for good. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
In verse 18, they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. And so Nehemiah has made the assessment of the situation. He knows it's going to require everyone taking their part, working together. We're going to see them later on working shoulder to shoulder, family next to family, next to family, next to family, tribe next to tribe. And again, I would suggest to you it's no different today. I'm going to dedicate a whole message to this later on, either me or Will. I can't remember which one of us. But uh, the idea that God calls us to work side by side with each other. Side by side. God would have us accomplish his will by teaming together. That's why we team up with those who, who, whom God sends as missionaries and church planters. They can't do it alone. That's why we're a church. We can't do it alone. We're not called to be Lone Ranger Christians. You can't do it. That's why you need this. Every week, you need this. That's why you need the people who are sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you. Let us rise up and build. Nehemiah knew he couldn't do this by himself. And that's why we do team up with missionaries and church planters. Let us take the gospel and go to Sweden. Let us go to Spain. Let us go to Japan. Let us go to Bolivia and build. Stephen Robin Boda can't do it alone. They need us. And I would just simply remind you one more time, you can't do whatever it is that God calls you to do alone. You can't. He doesn't want you to. You're not supposed to. And it would only be your pride that would prevent you from allowing others to help you. And then it says, so they strengthen their hands for the good work. You know, friends, Nehemiah has a lot to teach us. Nehemiah has a lot to teach us. But let me end with this. There was someone else who would go to Jerusalem, maybe about 500 years later. It says of him that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He too grieved over the city's condition and her people. In fact, on one occasion, it says that he prayed, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood, but you were not willing." Like Nehemiah, this one knew that the good hand of God was upon him. In fact, he actually heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Like Nehemiah, he fasted and he prayed for an extended period of time, 40 days, before embarking on his mission. He knew he had an enemy who would oppose him. He encountered the mocking and the jeering of those who did not want to see him succeed. And like Nehemiah, his objective was to build something, but something that could not be destroyed by enemy attack or by fire. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Praise God. And all who come to Christ, all who come to Christ, young and old, black, white, brown, rich, poor, high, low in society, all who come to Christ become living stones who are used to build this great, glorious temple for God. And in the process, each of those living stones becomes a temple in himself or herself in which the Spirit of God lives and dwells. 
And so I would simply say to you, friends, come to Christ. Be a part of the, this great building project of God. Come to Christ. Become a living stone. Let God take you and use you and shape you and remake you. Let, let God repair you and restore you and breathe life back into you. Let God take all of the damage that's been done by sin in your life and wipe it away and bring restoration and beauty back into your world. Ask him to repair the walls that have been damaged. Ask him to make you a temple in which God himself can dwell. Come to Christ. Pray with me. This morning I invite you, I call you, come to Christ. Don't make it more complex than it is. Jesus simply said to the people, come to me, come to me. Let me restore you. Let me build something beautiful out of your life. Let me wipe away all the debris caused by your sin, all the destruction caused by your foolishness. I love you. I love you. Look at the cross and see my love for you. Look at the cross and see my love. If you've never received Christ, I invite you to do so today, right where you're sitting. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you today because I need to. Because I want to. I need you. I need you. I can't do this alone. Forgive me my sins. Thank you for loving me so desperately that you died for my sins. I give my life to you. I need you as my Savior. I want to follow you as my Lord, as my King, the King of kings. Be my King. And for the rest of you this morning, whatever the Spirit of God is saying to you about the walls and the gates of your life, principles from the life of Nehemiah that could be applied to you, being honest with your emotions, being honest with yourself, with others. Allowing God to repair the walls of your life, to restore that which is broken. Come to Jesus. Come again, and then again, and then again. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Spirit of God, for teaching us and encouraging us through the scriptures. 
Thank you for loving your church. Thank you for building your church. You are the great architect and the great builder. Thank you for taking people like us and making us living stones. All for your glory. We give you honor and praise, Lord Jesus, for your death. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. After supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we do so today with thanks and praise. God's people agreed by saying, if today you prayed to receive Christ, talk to me. Please talk to me that I might help you in your faith.